This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You've got different kinds of farmers, just like you've got different kinds of lawmakers or small businessmen or, or working folks that really dedicate their lives to what they're doing and others that don't. I will say this. You work hard on the farm. There's, there's no doubt about that. But I'll tell you, I was a teacher for a while. Those people work damn hard, too. That's John Tester. He's the senior United States senator from Montana. He's also a Democrat, which makes him a rare breed in Montana, a state that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump twice. Tester is unusual in other ways. He's a third-generation farmer, and he travels back to Montana every weekend from D.C. to grow wheat, barley, peas, and lentils. Last year, Tester published a memoir about his life and political philosophy. It's called Grounded, A Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America. As a moderate in a closely divided Senate, Tester has become a crucial swing vote. Today, Senator Tester joins me to talk about his life as a farmer, the state of the United States Senate, and how the Democratic Party can win back rural voters. Now let's get to your questions. So as you may have heard, there have been a few changes here in the CAFE family over the last few days. CAFE Studios, the company that publishes this podcast and our other podcasts, has been acquired by a terrific company, Vox Media. At the same time, frequent stay tuned guest and my CAFE Insider co-host, Ann Milgram, has had the honor of being nominated to be the next administrator of the DEA by President Joe Biden. So naturally, people have questions. I'll have more to say about all this at the end of the show, but let me address some of the questions that you folks had this week. This is a tweet from Cynthia at home using Twitter handle at sdatlarge. At Preet Bharara, you are having an impressive week. Will you have a new co-host now that Ann Milgram will be joining the POTUS team, hashtag AskPreet, as I mentioned? Every week on the Cafe Insider, Ann and I discuss the news about law and politics, and the answer is yes. She's got big shoes to fill. We expect to have a new permanent co-host in place really soon, and I think you'll be I think you'll be excited about who it is. Listener Peter Bale asks the question, Crumbs, can she, meaning Ann Milgram, can she be a discreet guest sometimes, please? Well, I'm going to work on that. I think during the pendency of Ann's nomination and before her confirmation, she's going to be a little quiet, not make a lot of public statements, not do any press or media. But once she's in office, just like any other public official, we'll be trying to get her on the show. And I'm sure she'll have a lot to share. This question comes from Twitter user at 4YTBIN, who asks, does my Cafe Insider membership transfer? Yes, it does. Everything remains the same. You don't have to do anything. So rest assured, the transition for people who are Cafe Insiders will be smooth. And then here's a broader question from at my name is Beth S. Quote, I'm unclear what the ramifications are. Will the current podcasts continue? End quote. Yes. So as I'll make more clear at the end of the show, everything remains the same. Stay tuned with Preet. We'll be here every Thursday. The Cafe Insider podcast will continue every Tuesday. 
the newsletters that you're getting, if you subscribe, you'll continue to get. The Doing Justice podcast remains in its feed, and you can binge listen anytime you want to all six episodes. Primarily, what will change is we will have the ability to bring more content, more podcasts, more contributors due to our new association with Vox Media. But for loyal listeners and readers of the material that Cafe puts out, it all will continue. Here's another question about Anne from Linda, who uses Twitter handle June Bell. Preeta's Anne's new DEA position requires Senate confirmation. My internet search has failed me, thanks. So Linda, the short answer to your question is yes, the DEA position does require Senate confirmation. In fact, the leadership positions at most law enforcement agencies, like the FBI, Secret Service, DEA, ATF, do require Senate confirmation. I thought it might be useful to give a little background on the DEA, since our friend, dear friend, Ann Milgram, will be soon heading up that agency. So the DEA is a relatively recent vintage. President Nixon created the DEA by executive order in July of 1973 by combining several existent DOJ and Treasury Department Drug Enforcement Bureaus through a proposal called Reorganization Plan Number 2. The first DEA administrator, John R. Bartels Jr., was confirmed by the Senate way back on September 12th of 1973. However, there's been a long history of acting DEA heads who never got confirmed by the Senate. So, for example, when the first DEA administrator, Bartels, resigned in 1975, his immediate successor served as acting administrator for almost a year. And in fact, in the current day, there hasn't been a Senate confirmation for a DEA administrator since December 2010, so over 10 years ago, when the Senate voted unanimously to confirm Michelle Leonhardt, who had been serving as the acting administrator since 2007. In fact, since Leonhardt resigned in 2015, so in the last five years and change, there have been five acting DEA administrators, including our friend and podcaster, Chuck Rosenberg. So yes, it requires Senate confirmation. People don't always get confirmed by the Senate. I expect Anne to be confirmed by the Senate. She's a former staffer in the Senate. I think her record is immaculate and excellent. So even though this is a pretty polarized partisan time, I expect her to be well on her way. This question comes in an email from Marilyn Greenberg. Preet, is Matt Gates still guilty of sex trafficking if Joel Greenberg, rather than Gates, paid the underage girls to have sex with Gates? So obviously you're referring to the thing that we've been talking about for a number of weeks and that has been a focus of the news. Representative Matt Gates from Florida appears to be under investigation. That investigation emanates from an investigation and, in fact, indictment of his associate, Joel Greenberg, who has been charged with sex trafficking and a host of other crimes. Your question's a good one. I don't think it matters. Matt Gates would be guilty if all the other elements are proven, at a minimum, by way of conspiracy. So if Joel Greenberg and Matt Gates had a meeting of the minds to engage in this conduct, conspiracy to engage in sex trafficking, it doesn't matter who did what, as long as each had an agreement, a meeting of the minds, and took acts in furtherance of the conspiracy, and certainly to actually have engaged in sexual activity would be an act in furtherance of the conspiracy. This question comes from listener Jonathan Slate, who asks, I thought it was widely believed that the jury in Rodney King's trial was desensitized to the video evidence because the prosecution played it too many times. Am I wrong? Without denying the horror of it, is there a risk of that in the Chauvin trial? Hashtag Aspreet. Now, that's a great question, and it's been discussed in a lot of places, and I think there's no perfect scientific answer, in part because different people react to things differently. I don't recall very well the issue that you've raised about the Rodney King trial, but I have been paying very close attention and watching pretty much every day 
the Chauvin trial. And yeah, I guess there's a possibility that there's some desensitizing going on with respect to some subset of jurors. But I balance that against, I think, the importance of showing the video and the various angles that so powerfully overcome all the bits of evidence that the defense is trying to confuse jurors with and hide and rebut. I think it goes a long way to forestalling a lot of the defense arguments about what the cause of death was, about what the intent of Officer Chauvin was, about whether or not he was reasonable in the proportionality of force that he used. There's just, there's no getting around what you see in the video. And I think it gives a lot of ammunition to jurors in the deliberation room when people are pointing out things that the defense has suggested bring reasonable doubt to the picture. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. My guest today is John Tester. He's a Democratic senator from Montana and the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Tester is also a working farmer. He tills the same land that his grandparents homesteaded in 1912. He joins me today to discuss his unusual path to the Senate and his advice for the Democratic Party. Senator John Tester of Montana, author of the book Grounded, a Senator's Lessons for Winning Back Rural America. Thanks for joining me. 
It's great to be with you, Preet. Thank you. So I will, I will admit something to you, which is um, we're not morning people over here. We are, rec- we are recording this on Wednesday morning in the 8 a.m. hour. But you've already been up for like four or five hours. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you roll, Senator? That's how I roll. No, I, I will tell you if, it was, if I was in Montana and we were farming as we are right now, uh, then, then you get up at daylight and roll with it till after dark sometime. But uh, here, I, I try to get up around six, uh, and then and then get out and get to the office and in good time. Uh, morning is when I do my best work and my best thinking. And that's been true during the pandemic as well. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Would you rather be known as a senator or as a farmer? Farmer. Why is yeah. that? Well, I don't know. It's just kind of who I am. I mean, it's uh, it's what uh, I'm very fortunate because uh, I've got two older brothers and neither one of them wanted to take over the farm. And, and I did from a very early age. And uh, so I was able to take over our family farm, the land that my grandmother and grandfather homesteaded. It's been an incredible opportunity for me and something that I dearly love. I mean, I I love get, getting up in the morning and walking outside and smelling the air and, and listening to the birds sing and and uh, and getting out on the tractor and and uh, you know stirring the dirt and planting and killing weeds and and watching the crops grow. I mean, just it just continues. And then you know some years are diamond and some years are stone. And working with Mother Nature, sometimes it feels like you're working against Mother Nature or Mother Nature is working against you. But it's it's a continual uh, it's a continual challenge and making sure you end up with a, with a piece of property that you can pass on to to your kids or somewhere in uh, for the next generation that they can continue to feed the world with. I just think it's really important. It's incredibly rewarding. And it's, it's also a place, uh, and you know this, Preet, having been in Washington, D.C., it's also a place where you can get stuff done and look and see what you've accomplished. And oftentimes in Washington, D.C., you work for an entire year. and There's and no harvest. There's <laughs> really the harvest never comes, you know, <laughs> or the 40 acres never gets worked or however you want to do it. What's the state of farming in America at this moment? There's tremendous opportunity, but I think it's in, it's in dire need of some attention. Uh, I think the consolidation that's happened in the marketplace where you've got basically three or four companies that control 80% of the world's food supply is not healthy. It doesn't contribute to competition and capitalism and, and those kind of things that are supposed to dictate markets. And it's the same thing on the input side. And so we've we've kind of become over the last 50 or 60 years people who just you know we we supply the the labor and the land and pay the taxes and and the big guys really control our lives a lot and and I, I would tell you this it's you know I converted organics in the about 86 87 and one of the reasons I did that there's a number of reasons but one of the reasons was I was driving my old 54 GMC into town with a load of wheat you know I was 29 years old or so and I thought, this is not a lot of fun. I'm, I'm dropping this winter wheat off in town. They're going to tell me what's wrong with it. They're going to dock my prices. Uh, and then I've got to take the price, take it or leave it. I'm totally beholden to them. I would really like to get into a place where there's actually competition in the marketplace, where I can you know, uh, offer some wheat or lentils or oil seeds, whatever it may be, to multiple people and, and let them bid against one another as to who who has the best price and sell it that way. And that's exactly what we did. And that's exactly what's happened over the last 35 years in organics. Although it's it's starting to consolidate in organic agriculture too, which is very concerning to me. 
but, uh, but ultimately, in the end, I think uh, we get too many subsidies from the federal government. And this is a Democrat that's saying this. Too many subsidies from the too federal many, government. When you say too many subsidies, how, does, how do farmers hear that? Well, I mean, when prices are bad, we get subsidies, okay? And uh, when you have a disaster, you've got crop insurance to take care of that. The, the crop insurance is fine, I think, and it is, it is also taxpayer-supported. I think it's necessary. But I will tell you, last administration, for example, when President Trump got in all these trade wars, the price of grain dropped. I mean, at one point in time, it, when we took over the farm in the spring of 78, the price of wheat was within a few cents of what it was when we took the farm over in 1978. That's not sustainable, and it's not any way you can pass a farm onto your kids, but it's because of the trade war. And so what happened was, as the Trump administration uh, took money from the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is part of the USDA, and sent out checks to the, to the farmers, which was fine, but you'd much rather get your checks from the marketplace. And uh, my folks always told me when, when I was growing up, they said, you know, never count on those federal checks as, as your way to make this place pencil out. If you do, you're going to get in financial difficulty. That's all changed now. And uh, subsidies are, are part of agriculture now because there's no competition in the marketplace. And so consequently, prices are continually, I think, depressed. So you mentioned Donald Trump, who presented himself as a champion of farmers. I'm betting that you think he was otherwise. And yet, I think it's the case that he got the overwhelming farmer vote. How does, how does that happen? He absolutely did get the overwhelming farmer vote and the overwhelming rural vote. Um, I, think, I think it happened uh, for a number of reasons. I think that uh, President Trump did a marvelous job of selling himself as something he wasn't, and, and, it, and, it, and it worked. Uh, the other thing that happened uh, was partially because of the pandemic, but truthfully it's been going on for many, many election cycles, is... Democrats haven't crafted a message that rural America can get on board with. And I think uh, President Biden is, is starting on doing that. Uh, infrastructure, education, those kind of things, I think, are still very, very important in rural America and very necessary, by the way. Uh, and, and we do it. I mean, I'm talking we as Democrats do it, but we don't talk about it enough. And we don't talk about the benefits and we don't, we don't sell it. President Trump, he's a car salesman, man. I mean, that's all he does is talk about all the wonderful things he's done. And, and sometimes they aren't near as wonderful as he says they are. And uh, the American people believed it, and they still believe it in rural America. You've mentioned rural America a couple of times. In fact, the subtitle of your book, Grounded, is, as I mentioned, a senator's lessons on winning back rural America. Why, why is that important for Democrats? If Democrats can win without rural America— make the case for why that project is significant? Well, I think, number one, I, I'm not sure you can hold majorities in the Senate and the House without rural America. I think it's, uh, I think it's really important that we, um, we try to make inroads into those areas because I think it's important for, them, uh, for the ability to hold majorities, and majorities are very, very important because you get to set the agenda in, in Washington, D.C. if you're in the majority. That's what's important because I think, you know, states change. And, and, and I think, you know, we look at the coast basically and, and we do very, very well uh, for the most part on the east and, and the west coast. With, and then there's a few states in the middle that, that we pick a few folks up on. If you turn the clock back, even 15 years, you know, North Dakota had a couple Democratic senators, very good ones too, I might add, uh, 
and Montana had a couple, uh, Arkansas had a couple. Those areas, I think, are, are important, uh, not only electorally to make sure you have majorities, as I've just said, but also because I think the Democratic Party has always prided itself on being a big tent. And being able to talk about issues that are important to rural America also not only is good for rural America, I think it's good for urban America and vice versa, by the way. And, and so when we quit talking to rural America and we as being Democrats quit talking to rural America, I think, I think it's just a mistake. And so if we focus on the big population areas and what's needed there, and that's important to focus on, make no mistake about it. We should also be able to multitask here and focus on some of the challenges that are that are in rural America too. Take a look at this last pandemic, for example. This is a prime opportunity to make some people think, at least. Uh, uh, you know, we had telehealth and distance learning, and and in Montana, the broadband is just not where it needs to be to do those kind of things or just basic business over the internet. Um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, building out broadband in in an infrastructure bill. And I think it's important. And I think we need to talk about what the advantages are if we're able to do that. And the fact is, at some point in time, people are going to realize that, and I believe this too, by the way, that the Republicans talk a good game, but they really don't deliver to rural America like they say. You know, and there's hot button issues they use like gun control and things like uh, that uh, pretty regularly. Uh, and Democrats uh, don't do enough to push back on that either. So, so you know, there's a lot of things out there. It's a many-faceted uh, a problem, I think, for, for rural America. And it's not going to be changed overnight. It's going to take a lot of hard work by a lot of people that are willing to go into rural areas and talk to people about what the challenges are in rural America and what the solutions are for those challenges. And we're not doing that right now. just want to ask another question about farming. And something you said a few minutes ago reminded me of of what I want to ask you about. Uh, I have in front of me Paul Harvey's speech back in 1978 to the Future Farmers of America convention. And this speech has been adapted into a car commercial a few years ago. And every word of it is beautiful about why farmers are good and important. Here's just one passage. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the importance of farmers? Do we mythologize farmers? Are they worthy of mythologizing? How do you react to that passage from Paul Harvey? Well, I think in, in some cases it's, it's, it's very true and in, in other cases, um, it isn't. I mean, I think you've got different kinds of farmers, just like you've got different kinds of lawmakers or small businessmen or, or working folks that really dedicate their lives to what they're doing and others that don't. I will say this. You work hard on the farm. There's, there's no doubt about that. But I'll tell you, I was a teacher for a while. Those people work damn hard, too. I cut up, we had a butcher shop on the farm. Um, and I can tell you, maybe the hardest work as far as physical work I've ever done is being a, a butcher. Uh, and we did it for 20 years and my body was about wore out to the point where we had to shut her down. So I guess what I'm really saying here, Preet, is there are no jobs out there that you couldn't make Paul Harvey's words fit to. I do think that there are certain things in agriculture that demand work to be done in a certain time. And if you don't do it, you're not going to be successful. For instance, we're, we're, we're in the middle of planting where I live in North Central Montana. 
And it requires, it just requires uh, 15, 16 hour days. If, you, if you're not willing to work, and that's actually working, uh, 15, 16 hour days. If you're not willing to do that, you're going to lose opportunity and, and lose income. If you're willing to get up and bust it, and it's not forever, it's for a couple of weeks, then, then that's fine. Then you can sleep in some other time of the year. Um, you know, so, but, but, but the truth is, is I could say the same thing. I mean, I was on the school board for nine years and my little town that I was raised in big Sandy. And I can tell you, there are teachers that work 16, 17, 18, 20 hours a day. And they, they work, they work their tails off and, uh, and they were, they were pretty darn good. They, it showed in the classroom. And, uh, and like I said, the Paul Harvey statement could, could have been easily said about them too. Very diplomatic of you. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's also danger on the farm. Uh, you know, sometimes over family dinner, my my kids will ask or will discuss who I'm interviewing this week for the podcast. And I mentioned that I was talking to you, and I, you know, I described some some things about you uh, at dinner. And then here's an event in your life that I'm sure you're very very tired of talking about, but it was very interesting to my kids last night, and many people may not appreciate the accident you had when you were nine years old. And they asked me a lot of questions about it, as teenagers might. What happened when you were nine? Well, I lost my fingers in the meat grinder. Uh, like I said, my- Oh, that, you uh, just we, tossed that off very casually. Oh, you know, there was, a, there was that time I slipped on the driveway. Oh, there was that time I lost three fingers in a meat grinder. That doesn't just happen. No, it, it doesn't. And, and for your listeners out there, you probably would ask, how does a nine-year-old kid get- close enough to a meat grinder to lose three fingers. Um, and I will tell you that um, my folks, and, and and me too, by the way, it wasn't just my folks. Uh, I wanted to do stuff, man. I just didn't want to stand around and watch them do the work. I wanted to get in there and do it, whether it was running a tractor or, or grinding meat or scraping steaks or whatever it might be. So I'll, the, the whole story is this, Preet. My, my dad, uh, we, were, we were feeding out some cattle, and my dad took a load of barley to town to get rolled. So he broke down a front quarter of beef to be wrapped into steaks, roasts, and, and boned out and put into burger, basically. And while he was gone, my mother and I uh, worked in there. Uh, my, older, my two older brothers, my, my, my middle brother was, was uh, doing something else. I don't remember what it was, but he wasn't on the farm right then. And my oldest brother was... 12 years older than me, so he was off uh, at college or working, or, you know, he wasn't around. So it was just my mom and I, and uh, we finished uh, getting the, the beef wrapped up, and the last thing you do is grind the burger, and and um, she was wrapping a, a few roasts, and I said, well, I'll, I'll just start grinding the burger, and she said, no, 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 I'll do it, and I, you know, I kind of pestered her, and I ended up grinding the burger, and and I was done, literally done grinding the hamburger. And I will tell you to this day, I don't know why, but uh, it might have been hypnotism of the of the auger in the grinder that pushes the meat through the knives and the, and the head. Uh, that's that's what I've kind of attributed it to, but I stuck my hand in the meat grinder. I don't remember sticking my hand in. I remember pulling my hand out. And um, all sorts of lessons were taught that day, of oh, course. I, I imagine. What are some of those? Well, I mean, number one, you've got to respect power equipment. Uh, you, you don't want to get into a situation where you treat it uh, less than uh, with total respect. The second thing is, quite frankly, and this is going to sound maybe a bit uh, bad, but uh, um, accidents happen. And once they've happened, it's over with. You better figure out how to live with it because it happened. And by the way, it wasn't my mother's fault. It was my fault. 
And uh, you have to accept responsibility and have to move forward. Now, what my parents did for me that was incredibly important was is they never let this be uh, an impediment to my success. It was part of who I am. Um, you accept it. Uh, you don't feel sorry for yourself. You adapt to what you have to adapt to. Like tying your shoes became a big deal for me right after I lost my fingers because I didn't have three fingers to tie the bow. But you figure out how to do it with two. And they pushed me. The other thing that I had that was an incredible advantage, I when I started school, I basically started with 35 kids that 12 years later I graduated high school with. There was a few that came in, a few that left, but not very many. Those kids knew me like family, and they didn't cut me any slack. And by the way, but if somebody else came in from another town and started giving me crap about missing three fingers, they were the first to come to my defense. And that was incredibly important for me as I grew up um, because that's when I found out, you know, if you got true friends, they got your back. But on the other side of the coin, you know, they had harassed, they'd harassed the hell out of me when we were out on the playground or playing basketball or whatever it might be. They never cut me any slack. And, and I just think that whole experience, even though it was really bad uh, when I was nine years old in June of 1966, uh, that whole experience probably is the reason why I'm in the United States Senate. Because it, it taught me how to adapt. It taught me how to fight. It taught me how to stick up for myself. It taught me all sorts of things that you never think of. Now, I do not recommend anybody listening to this side <laughs> podcast or anybody else do that. Because it, it, it might not hurt to begin with. But I'm going to tell you what. It, I was in my 20s before uh, if I bumped the desk, it didn't put, put me to my knees with my left hand because of the, the, the nerve endings in my fingers. But, but the bottom line is, is that it has become a part of who I am. Uh, when I got here to the United States Senate, uh, there were stories written about it, my mangled left hand, and I've never, ever seen my hand as a mangled left hand. It's a, it's a left hand with two fingers on it. And, and I can do some things pretty well with that left hand with two fingers on it. It's one of those things that, Man, I'll tell you what, it's when, when you're working with, with equipment, you've just got to show it incredible respect because accidents happen so quick that if you're not thinking about it, it can bite you. And, and after it bites you, it can be a difficult situation. So I'm, I'm not sure you quite said this, and obviously you don't recommend anyone intentionally losing three fingers in their hand, putting their, their hand in a meat grinder. But if you could push a button and go back in time and undo that, which would seem to be what most people would say, would you? Well, I can't, number one. Number two, of course I would. Yeah. I mean, hell, I'd love to have five fingers on my left hand. I'd, I'd be able to drive in basketball to the left a lot better than I can now. I'd, who knows? I mean, I, I, might, I might end up being a banjo picker or something, you know, uh, which would be pretty cool. But, you know, I mean, I, no, I, I absolutely would. I mean... Uh, everybody wants to be normal, uh, and, and missing three fingers on the left hand makes you not normal. And uh, so I'd take them back in a heartbeat. Although I will tell you, if you said, would you put them back on your hand today? I don't know that I could. I'd have to adapt to how to figure out to do it. When you're a kid, you can adapt. When you're an adult, it makes it a lot tougher. <laughs> I don't know that I could figure out how to use them again. We'll be right back to my interview with Senator John Tester after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So I want to thank you for something, and I mentioned this before we started taping. You, I think, are in some ways the proximate cause for my staying as a Senate staffer for two extra years. I started at the beginning of 2005 when the Democrats were in the minority for Senator Schumer, and then I had planned to leave, go back to law firm practice after the 2006 election, uh, and I stayed up all night, virtually all night, fell asleep on the couch in November of 2006, and the Democrats were down five seats, I think, if my memory serves, and no one thought that power in the Senate would change hands. And I woke up early in the morning the next day, and the results were not all in. I think we were waiting on Virginia and your race in Montana, and then ultimately just waiting on your race a full day after the election. And I had told my wife that you know I would leave for private practice. And then it looked like you were going to win. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to stay in the Senate because it's, it's more interesting professionally and otherwise to be in the majority. So, so you're the reason I stayed and ultimately got recommended to be the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. So, Senator, thank you. How, how was that night for you? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the night for me was actually somewhat similar to yours. Uh, we, we were up and, and, and the results had not fully come in. Um, and by the way, this is the way it's been in every one of my elections in 12 and 18. It was the same way. But in six, we, we'd, we'd worked hard. I mean, we worked really, really hard. And uh, even on election day, I mean, I was glad to have it over with because uh, we'd done everything we could do. And and so at, a, at about midnight, I, I said to my staff, I said, I'm, Charlotte and I, my wife and I, we're going we're gonna to go to bed. Uh, wake us up when you find out who won. And we went to bed. And I went to sleep, too, by the way. And uh, we were sleeping along. And about 4.30 in the morning, uh, there was a knock on the door. And, and I woke up and I thought, wow, they know who won. And so I went to the door and said, who won? And they said, we don't know. And I said, why the hell did you wake me up? <laughs> you know, and they said, well, you got to do morning shows. So I went down and did morning shows. Uh, uh, th- there's there's actually a pretty good clip of, uh, well, I was sitting in a chair and waiting for the morning shows to come on. And there was a roving camera. And, and I was asking the person to my left, uh, who, was, uh, who was not my staff member either, uh, but a press person, I said, well, who's up? And they said, oh, you're up by 5,000 votes. And I said, well, that's good. And then I talked to him, and then, well, now you're up by 1,300 votes because this precinct came in. And that's kind of the way it went for, I don't know, seems like five or 10 minutes. And then finally I said, well, what, what precincts are left? And, and they started listing. One of them that was left was Butte-Silverbow, which is Butte-Silverbow County, which is very Democrat. And there's actually quite a few people that live there. And uh, with a minute, they said, well, Butte Silverbow's out and the other counties that were out. I knew I had won. And I got this look on my face like, all right, baby, this is over with. We, we, <laughs> cl- we cleaned up. But, but it was an interesting night. And by the way, 2012 was the same way and 2018 was the same way. We never found out the results of those elections till the day after election day. I'm confused about that. A lot of people are. So Donald Trump won Mon- Montana in 2016 by, by what? How many points? I think it was 17. Uh, in 16, he won by 
20, I think. In 17, he won by By 20 points. And then you're up yeah. for re-election in 2018 as a Democrat. Yeah, yeah. And you won by like three points? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So how does Donald Trump take a state by 20 and you, a Democrat, win by three? And why, why does that keep happening? How do you keep winning in, in Montana? And to add on top of that, President Trump came to the state to trash me probably four or five times. Um, well, you, you win by you win by working working hard and telling people what you've accomplished and getting around and let people know that you're one of them. And and if you're able to do that, Montanans have in the past been renowned for splitting tickets, and um, you know vote for a, for a Democrat for this and a Republican for that, and just go down and vote for the person. Basically, is what I'm saying. And that's why it's so critically important. I mean, you got to do TV ads, and and uh, you know you gotta you know you gotta put up some road signs and stuff like that. But the most important thing you have to do is to get out and let people know that you're normal, basically, and that you haven't gone DC, and that you're you're working for Montana and the country to make it a better place. And uh, I've been able to do that. Would you prefer a safer seat, or do close races build character? Oh, wow. Uh, now, uh, close races make you old before your time. I, uh, I, I uh, no, I mean, I, I, I love Montana, uh, and uh, I've never looked at it as, geez, it'd be nice to be in Rhode Island or, you know, Delaware or somewhere like that, uh, because I just I just love the state. And uh, and I'm not saying, you know, Del- uh, Rhode Island or, or Vermont or a place like that isn't a beautiful place. I, I know they are beautiful places, but but Montana's home. You talked about being on the school board, the big Sandy school board. Yeah. In my family, my wife spends a lot of time in, in the leadership position with respect to the local schools. And even in good times, it is a really hard thing to make everyone happy. It's an impossibility. And certainly during the pandemic, it's exceptionally hard because everyone has a different view. Was that, was that job harder than being a U.S. senator? Yeah, tough, toughest political job I've ever had. Yeah, how come? And and the, and the reason is, is you'd, You'd sit down and, and and make a decision, and and if if it, if the people in the community didn't like the decision, they'd meet you at the doorway as you're walking out after the meeting adjourned. <laughs> That's a true story. And 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 they, but you're a big guy. You could handle. They, well, no, I mean they didn't want to fight you, but oh, they, okay. they did want they did want to make you justify why you did what you did at that moment in time. And it is it is the ultimate in accountability. And it and and the other thing is is when you're dealing with people's kids. It's a tough job, man. I mean, it, it, and rightfully so. You know, it's a sign that people care about their kids. Do you think Do you think we made a mistake in the country with respect to closing schools during coronavirus? And no, I don't. And the reason is, is because if I was put myself in a teacher's shoes, uh, I would, uh, where, where you, if you're a teacher, you get every, uh, every bug that comes into the classroom you get. Um, the sickest time I had was the two years I taught school because every time a kid came with a cold, I ended up with it. And with this virus being as dangerous as it was, I think it was important that we take that into account, not only for the teachers, but for the fellow students that might catch it from one another and take it home to parents who could be elderly or could be have pre-existing conditions and really put them at risk. So no, I don't. I do think, though, once once the teachers have had that vaccine, in particular, use the social distancing, do do the mask, do whatever you need, but we need to get those kids back in the classroom because, because you know, distance learning is fine, but it's not like having a teacher there. And um, 
And distance learning will be learned moving, moving forward. And I think in rural areas, it's, it can be very, very helpful. But the classroom is really, really, really important. And I think the fact that we've got kids who are, have deficits in their learning right now is proof of that. And it's going to cost a few bucks to get those folks back so we have an economy that, that's able to work, you know, 10 years from now. Um, but no, I, I think that it was a prudent thing to do to, to keep them home. But I do think getting them back as soon as possible is critically important. Can we talk about the Senate for a few minutes? Um, you bet. The world's greatest deliberative body. Is it broken? Yes, absolutely. Is it's it always been broken or is it more recently broken? Uh, I think it's, uh, look, I've, I've been in this position for a little over 14 years and it's been broken since I got here. So how do you fix it? Well, different people will give you different reasons, but I think you fix it by doing campaign finance reform. I think the amount of money that goes into these campaigns causes a real paralysis. You've got folks uh, that are Republicans looking over their right shoulder every decision they make because they're afraid they're going to get primaried. You get folks on the Democratic side, they're looking over their left shoulder every decision to make because they think they're going to get primaried. And by the way, it's just not getting primaried. It's primaried with somebody that has a lot of money behind them. And uh, that being the case, it causes people to do nothing. And that's exactly what's happened. So, look, if I had my druthers, uh, I would say uh, let's put campaign donation limits. Let's make sure we don't classify corporations as people because they shouldn't be able to donate to campaigns. And and let's go back to the good old days where a campaign in Montana uh, might cost, uh, you know, $5 million instead of over $100 million. And, uh, and you can still get your message out with, with $5 million in Montana. Um, but, but when you have $100 million, number one, you've run so many TV ads that a furniture a store or a car dealership can't run any ads because all people are seeing uh, is, is political ads. And then, uh, and then you know, the, the ads are there just to tick people off. I mean, they're not ads saying, you know, John Tester's a great human being because of this. They're, <laughs> they're saying John Tester's really a horrible human being because of this. And, uh, and I think it turns people off on politics. And uh, just as we were talking about engagement with local school boards being important, I think engagement with uh, elected officials are important at the federal level. Uh, but, but, but I will also tell you that that engagement needs to be uh, something that's productive, not, not something that where you're sitting in an in a, uh, airport and somebody comes up and says, you know, you're really a waste of time. <laughs> no, tell me why then. Okay, why am I wasting? Nope, you're just a waste of time and walk away. Uh, whereas in the school board, you know, you make the decision, they would walk up and say, okay, so why did you put this policy and what were you hoping to accomplish? Because this policy, not you, I don't have a problem with you, I have a problem with this policy. And that's really where we need to get back to. And I think that, you know, the country's divided, the Senate's divided, and I think the campaign finance is a big part of the division. Does it matter that some bills are passing that are very, very important and very sweeping and have you know, broad effects on the country and on the people of the country. Is it a problem that those bills sometimes are passing with zero Republican votes? I think if they're good for the country, uh, I would rather have a few Republican votes, but if, they, and the, but if they're good for the country, they should pass. I think oftentimes, infrastructure is a prime example, by the way. A few years ago, Republicans had control of the president's, uh, presidency, the House, and the Senate. And they talked about infrastructure, but they never got it done. There's no reason why they couldn't have. There were plenty of Democrats that would work with them on infrastructure. We were supposed to have a whole week. Yeah. Did that week ever happen? I don't think it did. Never did. Never, <laughs> never, never happened. And, and it was talked about during the campaign a lot. You know, this is a priority. Never happened. Why do you think that is? Is that for ideological reasons? 
pragmatic reasons or just utter incompetence? Because it makes no sense. Yeah, well, infrastructure is great to talk about, but you got to pay for it. You either pay for it with additional revenue coming in or with debt. That's the only way you can do it. And I think when it comes to paying for it, that's a problem. And, and I will tell you that my grandparents and my parents' generation understood that if you're going to have infrastructure, you have to write out the check. And uh, my generation doesn't understand that. And I think that's a, it's criminal. Um, what is infrastructure? Infrastructure, is, is, it can be defined a lot of different ways. Most people think of it as roads and bridges. Uh, broadband absolutely is a part of it now. I think, you know, schools. I think is part is part of infrastructure. You know, Joe Biden put in his plan childcare. Look, when I go home, I hear a lot of people talking about childcare being too expensive and not available in a lot of cases. I I would classify that as being infrastructure. And if you don't want to handle it in an infrastructure bill, which I know some folks don't, then let's figure out someplace else to handle it because it needs to be handled in this country, just like housing, which is also infrastructure. And so there's, uh, you know, it, 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 it can be very broad. Most people look at it as being roads and bridges, and that's it. But it is broader than that. I mean, does it matter? I mean, this is what some of the debate has been centered on. You see Republicans mocking Pete Buttigieg and Democrats generally for th- throwing all sorts of things, including some of the things you mentioned, childcare, housing, into infrastructure. Does that, as a political matter, and you're a savvy politician, do those labels matter in terms of winning support? and getting the thing across the finish line? Initially, I think, uh, for a talking point standpoint, they, they probably matter. But in the end, if you could get them done so people can see the benefits, I think they would say, you know what? This is a very good thing that happened. Um, ha- housing is a prime example. I think it's deficient everywhere in the country. I don't think we have enough affordable slash workforce housing. And I think it has real negative impacts on business expansion and business uh, startups. And because if you don't have housing, it's pretty tough to have a business. And so if, if we were able to do some things with affordable housing, and there's a lot of different ideas, some of them I agree with, some of them I don't, on how you get affordable housing, then, then I think that that is a positive thing for the country and moving forward. And, uh, and I just think it does positive things for, for uh, competition, for building communities, for the vibrancy of communities. But you can never get there to actually prove that unless you get the housing built. Do you think there could come a time if the Senate remains broken and at a standstill, that you would support strongly filibuster reform or ending the filibuster altogether? So, look, I think the filibuster has benefits. I think that, and you know this, Preet, I mean, I think that if you can get Democrats and Republicans to come together and compromise on a bill, oftentimes that bill is better. But I did not come here to get set on my hands and not get anything done. And I think things like uh, making sure we have honest elections and campaign finance reform are important to get done. I think it's things we could get bipartisan support for, so I think we ought to work for getting that bipartisan support. But in the end, with that, with infrastructure, with with some other things that I think are important too, if we can't get bipartisan support simply because the Republicans are being threatened by their big donors that if Democrats succeed, they're not going to support them, and they're going to run primaries against them, then you have to look at the filibuster and say, all right, um, we'll, we'll, we'll bid it adieu. Uh, but I, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we can get folks that have enough backbone to be able to work with the other side of the aisle to and compromise. Look, the bills that come up, I mean, you know, the bills that are put forward, there's always room for compromise in those bills. If you, re- if you want to trash them and gut them, 
that's a different story. But if you want to compromise and tweak them here, tweak them there to make them better, I think there's opportunities for negotiations. How's my old boss, Chuck Schumer, doing as majority leader? He's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble. Not everyone's going to know that's a joke. <laughs> Chuck Chuck has got the hardest job in the United States Senate. I mean, you want to talk about herding cats. I mean, he's got to, he's got to deal everybody from Bernie to Manchin. I mean, that's tough. It truly is tough. It's a job that I really wouldn't want to have, but he's doing well. Who's the biggest pain of the next senator that he's got to deal with? Probably Tester. You know, he's really. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It's <laughs> no, not you. It's look, definitely not you. I wouldn't. I, I. I wouldn't. I wouldn't throw anybody under the bus like that. But I will tell you, uh, and you know this. I mean, uh, Democrats tend to go their own way, and there's. It is a big tent, and there's a lot of folks uh, in our caucus that have different views on the way things uh, should be done. And Chuck's job is to make sure the place doesn't blow up. And that people are working together uh, to to move the country forward. It's a hard job. It's really a hard job. And, Would you want uh, that job? I I can't imagine ever wanting the job. Although I will threaten Chuck every once in a while <laughs> that, you, that you'll run against him. Exactly. <laughs> he was he was very proud of that class of two thousand six. He was the head of the DSCC back then. I, I'd like to think he's still proud of us, but uh, he no, he is. I mean, uh, Chuck is. Chuck's a, he's a good guy, and uh, and, and I, I like Chuck. We don't always agree, but uh, in the end, uh, I will tell you that being the leader, whether you're Harry Reid or Chuck Schumer, and I've only had two during my tenure here, uh, it's a tough job. And, you know, and Harry's leadership style was totally different than Chuck's. And, uh, but, but, yes, but although know, they were very close. And, they were very and, close. And Schumer would tell you that Harry Reid was his mentor. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that, yeah. So, so you're you're a Democrat in a very Republican state. Trump won by a lot of points. Joe Manchin is the same. Trump won West Virginia by even more points. Do you see yourself as a senator in a similar position as Joe Manchin? Do you identify with him? I, I don't think people think of you in the same way they think of Joe Manchin. How, how do you compare the two of you as members in the Senate sharing that somewhat common dynamic in your home state? We've got... Um, of course, we've got different styles, and, and Joe's a good friend also, um, and I, I appreciate what Joe does. Uh, as a teacher, I learned that you never put down, uh, never draw lines in the sand. And if I had any recommendations for Joe, it would be don't, don't draw lines in the sand. Just when you say, if you lay down an ultimatum and say, if you do this, I'm going to do that, it really doesn't leave you any room and, and I think that's probably the biggest difference. Joe, Joe and I line up a lot on policy the same. But in the end, uh, Joe has said, you know, I'll never move the filibuster. I, uh, Joe, and I just think that anytime you, you, you lay down ultimatums like that, you don't know what the future is going to bring. And it's kind of like saying, you know, the next time you, next time you talk to your neighbor, you're going to get swats out in the hallway. Well, I guarantee you, you just you're going to have to give spots then. And, and that, that's a problem. <laughs> and so uh, I just, I would just say, don't, don't, don't do the ultimatum stuff. Uh, work with people as much as you can work with them to try to get things done. And ultimately, you know, stick with your values and stick with your goals. Uh, but, but in the end, uh, and as part of it's because I was here during the Affordable Care Act debate, you were too. Uh, I watched Max Bacchus go the extra mile trying to get 
folks on board. And it was obvious in the end that Max was not going to be successful at getting any Republicans on board on that because somebody had figured out uh, that they were going to be able to use this as a political tool to get back in the majority. And they did. They did. Uh, but but the truth is, part of that problem was we spent a year negotiating on a negotiations process that was doomed from the beginning, I believe. We had an insurrection at the Capitol, as everyone knows, on January 6th. We're, you know, three months on from that. Do you have raw feelings about it? And in particular, do you have raw feelings about any of your fellow senators on the Republican side? I still have raw feelings about the impact, what happened on the 6th of January uh, for all the reasons that people have talked about. The fact that this has been a beacon of freedom that, that a bunch of folks went in claiming they were doing their constitutional duty when I'll bet you none of them have ever read the Constitution and um, did some bad things. I Initially, I will tell you that I had some pretty raw feelings for the folks I served with in the Senate. Those have subsided. Uh, I still will not forget what the folks did that I believe enabled the insurrection to happen. Instead of telling the truth, they jumped on this political bandwagon of saying the election was stolen. I remember that, but but I don't have I, I don't have the I, won't, I wouldn't call it hatred, but but certainly the I don't know, I don't know what word to pick out of my vocabulary, which is pretty darn small. But <laughs> but I uh, I just will tell you that I was very disappointed. In, in what some of my my fellow uh, senators did uh, leading up to that. Does, and, does it uh, affect whether or not you would go out of your way to co-sponsor a bill with, for example, Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or, or, or someone else? Uh, initially, it, it absolutely did. Um, and now, I'm, I'm, I'm be honest with you, I'm, uh, time is the greatest healer. I'm uh, more inclined, if it's a good bill, uh, to overlook the person behind it and look for what the value of the bill is itself and, and, and sponsor it based on that uh, and try to put the insurrection and the things that led up the insurrection out of my mind. I think it's really important the country comes together. And I think if I, if I stay divided, uh, how can I expect the people that I serve not to stay divided? Do you believe that, that the United States of America today functions as a meritocracy? And whatever your answer is, should it? Well, I mean, look, I, I don't know if I'm answering this question the way it should be answered, but I will tell you that I am very concerned about this country moving forward because I think there's an old statement that oftentimes great countries rot from within. And I will tell you, the vaccines are a prime example. When I was a kid, my folks took me to the doctor and we had a sugar cube and they'd give you a shot in the arm and they took care of smallpox and whatever else it was, there was no questions asked. We have so much vaccine hesitancy in this country for no good reason whatsoever. This is a very safe vaccine that doesn't have side effects. It's very effective against the virus. That's the things I'm really concerned about this country right now. I mean, campaign finance is important. Uh, make sure we have a functional United States Senate is important. But when you have people that witnessed 550,000 people dying in this country because of a virus. They continued to see how it shut down the economy across the world. The United States was certainly not immune from that. And say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to get, we're not going to get a vaccine because whatever reason they have, I don't know what it is. I think that's, that's scary. And that's scary for the country moving forward. And the fact that 
Uh, as Bernie said in caucus yesterday, 40% of the people in this country don't believe that democracy works. Um, that's also very scary. I mean, because that means that, uh, as, as, as Angus King once pointed out to me, democracy is an exception. They're not the rule. Dictatorships are the rule. And, and so we need to be careful. What we have today is something that's very, very special, and it's there because the forefathers did, an, did a marvelous job in developing the institutions that continue to be strong in this country. If we continue screwing around with some of this stuff, uh, whether it's an insurrection on January 6th or whether it's not taking vaccines or whether it's a campaign system that's dictated by a few moneyed people in this country, I think we have a chance of losing it. And so we need to be smarter. Okay, everybody. Senator John Tester says, get your vaccine, please. <laughs> get your vaccine. Get your vaccine. Or he'll, he'll come to your house. Pretty please. He'll Pretty go to please. people's houses. Sugar on top. Right. <laughs> uh, John Tester, Senator, it's been an honor and a privilege to have you here. The book is Grounded, A Senator's Lessons in Winning Back Rural America. You should pick it up. It's inspiring and thoughtful. Uh, Senator Tester, thanks again. Preet, it is indeed a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. So I want to end the show this week by talking about something that struck me in the news. And of course, it was the news about us and the acquisition of our company by Vox Media, as I mentioned at the top. As I said, for folks who wonder why we did it and what it means for our content, rest assured, our content continues. Everything that we're currently doing, we will continue to do. Ellie Honig's podcast, the Insider podcast, the Doing Justice podcast, clearly the Stay Tuned podcast every week will be the same. We have the same team. The entire CAFE team who helps put this together is coming to Vox Media. I've spent a lot of time with the leaders of that great company, the CEO, Jim Bankoff, and the president, Marty Moe, and I've started to meet other folks at Vox Media. They have an award-winning podcast network. I think they're the premier producers of podcasts in the country. And one reason we're taking this step is that we will have editorial autonomy. They're acquiring us because they like what we've done so far. And what they want and what we want is to do more of it. You know, we've grown so fast over the last three years, we didn't have an expectation that we would have this much content, this many products, just three years and change into our existence. And we keep having ideas. We keep wanting to start new podcasts, to bring on new contributors. And it will just be easier to do that with a great company, with all the assets and resources that Vox Media has. So I think it's going to be terrific for everyone, not just for us, but for you. And I can't wait. And it's especially heartening that a company that does such high-quality programming is aligned with our values and our mission, who care about thoughtful, intelligent content that helps educate, inform, and explain while also being entertaining, which I hope we are. I want to thank the CAFE team, as I mentioned. They're all coming to Vox Media, from Tamara Sepra to all the other names that you hear in the credits. Vox Media saw the value not just of particular podcasts, but all the people who make the podcasts and the newsletters and everything else possible and available and relatable. I want to thank one more time Ann Milgram, who's on her way to becoming the next DEA administrator. As some of you know, I met Ann 16 years ago, and we've been buddies ever since. And I'll miss having an hour of therapy with her, and there's no replacing her, of course. I think you'll be excited to hear who my new co-host will be. I think we'll be announcing that very soon, and I'm excited about that also. And then finally, I want to thank one more person who's probably the central 
and key reason why we're at this point, why we're growing the way we're growing, why we've been so successful. And it's, and it's not me, but it is a Barrara. It's my, my, my brother, my kid brother, although he's not a kid anymore, Vinny Barrara, who, you know, we don't talk about that much. He's a behind the scenes guy, but he's the CEO of Cafe Studios. He's the one, after I got fired by Donald Trump back in 2017 and was beginning to write my book and teach at NYU Law School, I had some conversations with my brother, the CEO of a company called Some Spider, which is still thriving and in existence and oversees a number of parenting brands like Scary Mommy, you may have heard of it, and The Dad. And there was also a sort of fledgling brand within that company called Cafe. And he said, why don't you take it over? And we started by doing this sort of modest podcast. Stay tuned with Preet, which we did a little bit on a lark. You know, I would talk to people every week. I would answer questions about what was going on in law and politics and government and democracy in the Trump administration. It would be kind of a, a little gig that I would do week after week. And it became immediately popular. And of course, while my brother will say and has said to me, you know, of course you were going to be successful. Of course, lots of people were going to listen. It did take a leap of faith on his part. You know, he's a businessman. So just because I'm flesh and blood doesn't mean he was going to be necessarily doing me any favors, but he had faith and confidence that doing this new thing, which is different from issuing subpoenas and trying cases, that it would work. And he had enough confidence in it that he put his money behind the project and substantial time and effort and resources. And lo and behold, we grew, the audience grew. We then launched the Cafe Insider. We brought on new contributors. And all the while, although you folks don't know it, my brother was in the background supporting it, building it, helping to do all sorts of things that are invisible to the audience to make this the success it has been. And I couldn't be more proud to be working with him and to be his brother. You know, I, I use the word brother a lot with folks, with friends of mine. Hey, brother. Thanks, brother. Talk to you later, brother. But of course, I have only one real brother. It never would have occurred to me when we were little kids growing up in Eatontown, New Jersey, and fighting over the remote control and, and uh, who would get to eat more dessert at the end of a meal, that Vinny and I would be business partners decades later and have achieved this kind of success. I've learned a lot these past few years, not just about how to be a podcaster or how to interview somebody, but about leadership and business and judgment just by watching my brother. So we're not the kind of brothers who say these things to each other. So I thought I'd say it here on the podcast for all of you to hear it as well. I'm so proud of Vinny for everything he's accomplished and everything he's done for me because he didn't have to. I love you, bro. See you next week. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Senator John Tester. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, 
Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.